You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. Craig's point for a second, though, about the nobles. Yes. In Branna's version, it's very much about who can talk to a king. Because he walks among the common people in disguise, but the only person who can voice to the king those very same doubts is a noble, Mm -hmm. which is why it makes so much sense for him to be talking to everybody. Yeah. Because he's like, you know, all of you have said this, you couldn't say this to me as the king. Now I'm talking to all of you. Yeah. And it's unifying in a way that Hiddleston's like little teeny gathering is not. It's definitely a class alienation in the Hiddleston version where they're, they're very much kept separate, which I mean, in my mind sort of as I was watching it in direct contrast to the brand, I'm like, maybe this is more realistic about what would have happened. But mm-hmm. uh, it is a, it is a very interesting choice that they make to, to alienate him from the people. And I think, you, you you both make good points that especially given the context of the Henry the Four plays that he that scene maybe is is better interpreted as a as with Henry the, the uniter of classes. I think the other thing too is that in the in the Shark version when ha, um, Henry talks to sorry I'm officially calling him the guy with the glove I'm sure sure whatever <laughs> that dude but when he talks to him they're sitting side by side on the tree and the guy who has the <laughs> <laughs> he's really good and he gives this very emotional performance as he's talking about, you know, it does the, is the king right? If, if he's not, then it's on the king's head. And you really sort of really, you really connect with him and I find him really memorable. And so it seems kind of a loss to then not have Harry as, as the king have an opportunity to address this guy that he talked to and other people that he knows are having these doubts with his speech to inspire them as well. Like, what was the point of that emotional connection if he can't make use of that emotional connection now to inspire them to war? And you also think for, for a king that's been, in the Sherrick version, for a king that's been so thoughtful and reluctant about going to war, he seems awfully unwilling to share his new certainty with the people he's sending to their deaths. It's quite callous. Right. On the other hand, but, like, one of the things that I find kind of annoying about it, like, in retrospect, is if you consider the fact that, like, nobody... Well, they don't really show all the people with dysentery and how they're all going to die from that. So it seems like... Yeah, but dysentery is disgusting. Right. <laughs> like... Right. But if you don't know that they're all, like, sick because you don't... Well, you can kind of see them being... They look sicker in Branagh's than they do in Sharrick's. But, like, if you don't know that they're sick, and if you know the outcome of the battle, it's, like, 10,000 French died, and it's 25 or 125? It's, it's, it's literally 25, I think. It's 25, yeah. yeah. Like, Plus, like, three nobles. They have to be counted separately. So he's really not sending people to their deaths. 
like, sorry, York, you're going to die, and, like, a couple others, but mostly they're all fine. Yeah, but, like, in Branna's, you get a very, very clear sense that, like, we could all die here, and I'm pretty sure we're going to, but we're doing it anyway. Yeah. No, for sure. Maybe if we want to talk about, like, in, in terms of the battle, I thought, like, you're, like Branna spends a lot of energy in that production on like playing up the the horrors and miseries of war like you see long patches of them slog as the map the dotted line travels across the map you see patches of them slogging through rivers and muddy ravines and miserable conditions and dying and getting weak they really sort of spends a lot of time for an edited production on setting that scene whereas it's much less much less depicted in the in the sherrick I mean, there's war there, but it's not as dirty. Like, they're on a grassy field, not in mud. And it's not raining. And it's not, like, totally horrible weather. And it's not... And the fighting is not quite as bloody. There is that kind of hilarious moment in Brenna where he goes, like, you know, the battle isn't in our hands, it's in God's hands. And it immediately starts raining. (laughs) And he just has this expression, like, oh, not this. (laughs) <laughs> like oh man but it's funny in the Sherrick version now that you mention that the battles get increasingly less visceral and increasingly less bloody as the production goes on because in in the early stuff it's like you have shots of men being scalded yeah. and yeah but all but to be fair for Henry the battles get more visceral because you really see him fighting Mm-hmm. at Agincourt and at the end of Agincourt he's got not just dirt on his face but blood not a lot That's of blood, blood. <laughs> not Coriolanus level blood but like yeah but he's, he's killed got, some dudes yeah I kind of want to backtrack a little bit to the soliloquy that he has the night before the mm-hmm. the battle which is cut in Sharrick's and is there in Branna's because as he's talking about his uncertainties and about in, in that soliloquy, he's, like, sitting by the fire, and he's seated, and all of his men are, like, lying down on the ground sleeping, but they mm-hmm. kind of look like bodies on a field. Yeah. So there's this feeling of, like, a foregone conclusion, like, they're already dead bodies. They're just waiting to die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a fatalism about it. Yeah. That... Which you don't get in, in Sharrick's. And, I mean, I think cutting that soliloquy is a mistake especially in Sharrick's I think it's probably a problem of maybe it's somewhat the producer's fault for not better having better coordination but I think you really need that scene of of Henry being like must be nice to be able to sleep when you're a plebe yeah given that we just watched Henry the fourth part two we just watched daddy deliver a speech about uneasy lies that lies that the crown the crown like those are really interesting uh like contrast, I guess, or it's as though he's stepping into his father's role by giving the same kind of soliloquy that his father just gave before. Like that's almost like a rite of passage that you know he's king because, and that would have really, really had emotional resonance in Sherrick's because you just saw Henry the Fourth give that. Whereas in Branagh's standalone, like you'd have to like know Henry the Fourth pretty well to even make that connection. Okay, so backing, backtracking a bit to the character of the chorus. In Thea Sharrick's version, she actually has made the chorus a character in the play. So the chorus is Falstaff's boy, now as an adult, 
many, many years later, looking back on what happened. Um, but you only find that out at the end. Yes. Sorry. Spoilers! <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, there are spoilers in Henry V. Say, win Agincourt! Oops. And so, we, it both gives us a, uh, more of an emotional connection to the chorus than we have otherwise, which is kind of in tune with Shark's general thing of trying to give us an emotional connection to all of the people on the play. But where one of the things that I think is particularly interesting is, in, is that it really plays up our relationship to Falstaff's boy then, because he's eventually going to be the chorus, so we get to see him witnessing things. And one of those, one of the key scenes for me that's really important in Sharrick's that, that seems sort of missing in, to some, I mean, it's there, but in, in not in quite the same way in, in Branagh's, is that after, in, in Sharrick's, after Falstaff dies... They're headed towards war. They're talking about Falstaff's death outside of the boar's head as they're about to head off to war. It's, and you really feel that they're leaving um, and leaving something behind. And the last person to head off is Falstaff's boy. And before he does that, he sort of looks off wistfully at the window up above where Falstaff's room would have been. And it's sort of a reminder of that loss. And... To me, anyway, the, the, the moment that we spend with him alone reflecting on Falstaff ends up as kind of a proxy for how Henry V feels because you get to feel that loss through the boy in a way because Falstaff was kind of a father figure for, for Henry. And by seeing that loss through the boy, you get the sense of the death of the other father, that like now he's really king. First, his biological father, Henry IV, died, and that made him officially king, but now that his other, you know, less, or his other sort of more odious father that I want people to know about, now that his other father is dead, it's like he's really standing on his own two feet. And so you, to me, that it really gives you an important reason for Falstaff to die because Falstaff's death is thus like an important part of Henry V's evolution into being the king or Hal's, Harry's evolution into becoming Henry V in a way that I didn't really feel was present in Branna's because they're sort of sitting on the stairs and Mistress Quickly and Pistol and Nim and Falstaff's boy and young Christian Bale are all sitting there and talking about, oh, they're sad and uh, there's not really a, you don't have the same connection to the boy and, you know, everybody's kind of sad and you also don't really feel like they're about to leap to war, although you do feel like it's, you know, the war is about to interrupt their grieving, but you don't really get the same sense of why it was important to see Falstaff die. Although I would just challenge that point quickly, Alex, because my when I saw it for the first time, I didn't realize that the boy was the narrator until the very last scene. So it colored things in retrospect, but in that scene, I didn't have that same emotional attachment to the boy. I mean, if perhaps I had been a more astute viewer and paid attention to the the boy being part of the funeral procession in the in the opening scene with the voiceover, I might have made that connection mm. um but i didn't so for me throughout the play I, I just thought it was a more cinematic take on the chorus of just having a voiceover as opposed to uh the actual physical character the much more traditional you know, what you would need to do on stage and what they chose to do in the brana version um but to me it sort of adds this extra like kicker to keep you that got me thinking at the end of the play when i realized the chorus came on you know with uh with the arm wrap the uh cross of St. George arm wrap that the boy had carried in the battle or carried to the funeral, had worn in the battle and had gotten from Falstaff that helped sort of tie it together in retrospect. 
expect, but for me, not at the time. Right. I guess maybe I'm sort of talking about two things and conflating them that I think that in order to feel the boy's loss of Falstaff, you don't have to know that he's the chorus. You just know him. You've seen him in Henry the fourth part too, when, and you know, and your connection to him is personal and you feel because you know that how gave him to Falstaff as like a gift. And so, you know, that they're all sort of connected together and that the boy is sort of connected to Falstaff via Hal. And so you, I still think you feel Falstaff's death through the boy through to Henry V. And then maybe where it gets more powerful is that because once you eventually figure out that the chorus is the boy, that you, you, the whole play has this coloring of, I don't know if nostalgia is quite the right word, but, you know, he's just watched people die and he's watched all kinds of shit go down over the years in a way that you don't get with the chorus if you don't, if the chorus isn't tied to, like, one of the characters in the play. Tangentially related, mostly related to Mrs. Quickly, Mr. Quickly and the old crew, the Branna Henry was the first Henry I ever saw, and I watched it before I'd read the play. And it's really ineffective at conveying who these people are and how they relate to Henry. Oh my God. Yes. I had no idea why we were following these people Jeez. until I like, was in a dark bar. Even with the flashbacks, yeah. I had no clue what the hell was going on. I mean, like I sort of got a little bit of the Falstaff business, but like, not really. No. Like, I didn't even know that, like, I didn't know enough about history to know that he was like all went and whored around before he became king. So I had no clue what the hell was going on. Yeah. And I actually didn't even know it was a flashback, I think. I watched it with you, and you had to explain to me it was a flashback. I was like, what? Why is he Why is he whoring around now? Like, isn't he supposed to be going to war? What the hell is going on? <laughs> why is all the lighting red? Yeah. I had no idea what was going on there. And now that I know the plays more, I find that those flashbacks annoying because they just, like, get things wrong. They like, are completely unsuccessfully trying to convey something. Yes. Which Sherrick does not have to do because you just saw Henry the Fourth Part One and Two, so you know who they are. Yeah, she can assume a hell of a lot of context. Yeah, right. The other thing, like just going, we we'll probably have more to say about Mistress Quickly and the folks at the Boar's Head, but just I want to pick up on what Craig said about the about the voiceover, um, the chorus's voiceover, um, because I agree with him that I think it's a really you do lose something in the process of that, but I think it's it is a really smart way of translating that into the conventions of film because like we were joking before we started recording that one of the problems with having the chorus when you have a film is that when the chorus is like, can this cockpit contain the vasty fields of France? It's like, I'm yeah, just like, I yes, can. there they are. Pretty sure. Yeah. Um, and every time it's like, imagine we have this, wouldn't it be great? It's like, yeah, you don't have to imagine it's right there. Yeah. Particularly because in the Branagh version, he is literally walking in front of the set, like in front of the like physical location where they're about to be actors performing the scene. Yep. Uh, he like in the in the right after the Bardol scene, he's literally following the soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. And so in in Sharrick's, I mean, it by making it voiceover too, and because a lot of those scenes she basically has little montages like they have montages of them heading off to war and they have montages like at the end they're looking back at Henry's big exploits and it's like a memory that it sort of 
you're paying more attention to what you're seeing on screen than you, and it's sort of like narration as opposed to paying attention to all of the meta theater stuff. Like, imagine it's a stage. Imagine it's a field. It's not a field. Oh, wait, yes, it is because it's a film. And so I felt like I didn't notice those as problems in the same way as you notice it in Branagh's. But on the other hand, it then just turns it into narration, whereas I think kind of what's interesting with Branagh's too is the way that the chorus and our relationship with the chorus changes as the play goes on. How so? Like, it's like the chorus goes, I mean, maybe this is a good reason for why having the chorus be the false half display is a good idea, is, like, the chorus seems to actually go on a journey with them, with you. Like, you start off backstage with the chorus, and then you end up on, I guess they're in South, Southampton, because you see the three traders on the cliff, on a literal, on an actual cliff, because guess where they're headed? And then as they're at camp on their way to battle, you even see, like, he's cold and he's, the chorus is cold and he's tired and he's huddling and like it gives you a sense of the pulse of like where you are in the, the narrative and also the fact that the chorus then, you know, looks at Bardoff hanging and shakes his head like, oh, Henry. Like, Falstaff's voice will get some moments of looking at Bardoff and being like, oh, in Sharrick's, but it's not, you don't have the same... I don't know, you just have, like, a different relationship with the chorus as far as, like, the chorus telling you the story, in part because you don't see the chorus telling you the story. It's all voiceover, so it could be, in some ways, the chorus could be anyone. I'm kind of contradicting myself, but <laughs> maybe because I have mixed feelings about how they're both used. Yeah, no, I think I, I think I get part of what you're saying, and I, I agree, you're right. I think the chorus in the Brana version does help set the scenes sort of embodying the, the temperature or the, the physical sort of drain or whatever it is. And I mean, obviously, that's the way pretty much every stage production is done, right? So it's not like it's a bad way to do it. It's, it's sort of a traditional take on, on the chorus that, that translates, you know, not... And it, I don't think it's terrible. I just don't think it's as innovative, maybe, as the... Yeah, the I think, I think you've really hit, hit it with what you just said in the sense that I think... What Branagh's doing, and this is kind of a problem with Branagh's adaptation, as an adaptation, is that he's giving you an experience that's as close to theater as possible, but on film. Whereas Sharik is saying, this is not a play, I'm going to make this a movie. Because it's not a play, because we're not in a theater, it doesn't make sense to have the chorus talking about the vasty fields of France that we don't have when we clearly have them. And so she's like, how do I translate this into the conventions of film in a way that Branagh doesn't do and one of the ways that she does that is the voiceover but the other thing that she does is that both during the chorus and even during other scenes is that she cuts back and you see she cuts back to remind you of the other characters like as they're preparing for war you see the Dauphin you see the King of France preparing for war you see the she cuts back to the boar's head as you see Pistol and Nim and Bardock preparing for war you see Henry practicing with his bow and arrow like she keeps reminding you that people are there in a way that you don't have that you can't do and don't do on stage but kind of need to do on film like she's not afraid to move things around i guess i would just say to that that not only is Shara direct Shara's directing for the screen but in fact she's actually directing for the television screen right yeah. Which, yeah. which forces her to take a different scale and maybe i'm i'm thinking as i speak but it's also, you know, a lot less bombast and a lot more close-ups and quiet, quiet sort of discussion and intense dialogue that actually borrows something from the from televised uh, conventions 
Whereas the, I mean, I'm just thinking immediately of the Brano once more into the breach is all theatrical bombast. It's a fiery explosion and he emerges on a horse in the distance. Like it's a very theatrical version. It's a very theatrical slash film inspired convention, whereas it's a much more intimate experience with the Sherrick version. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you in that. And I think you see that also in just how the framing is done. That in Brano's you have more wide shots, you have more expanses it's designed for the big screen and in Sharks you have a lot more coverage. I think it works because I also find the some of the close-ups and the con- the close-ups in Brandis to be kind of oppressive where he keeps putting you in close-up to be like, look, you can see Henry's face because otherwise you wouldn't understand because he's still and isn't speaking very loudly. And I find that kind of oppressive in parts, but in Sharks it's much more like coverage-based. Like, okay, we have a close-up, then we see have another close-up, and right now we have a two-shot. Which is very TV, and I think it's fine because we're watching it on TV, but I'm not sure that if you projected that on the big screen that... Kind of like, remember that? What was that movie we watched at TIFF that was all the big stars and the family, the two families across from each other, and we watched it at the Winter Garden? Was that this year? No, it was a couple years ago. The Winter Garden. Families. Can you give me more information? Uh, affair with the neighbor's daughter. Oh, you're talking about the oranges, the Hugh, the Hugh Laurie movie, where yes. that there was that really horrible Q and A question that's actually on YouTube. And how it was also a movie that was shot very in a televised way, kind of really awkward on the big screen. Yeah, kind of like the Avengers and everything J.J. Abrams has ever made. Okay. Oh, we're making enemies. <laughs> Yes, I don't know how well the Sharks would play on the big screen. I think Craig's right that it's very much television. And even that assuming context is very much like a miniseries convention. And I think, and the Hollow Crown is totally aware that it's a miniseries because in Henry IV Part Two there are actual previouslys, which I thought was hilarious to have previouslys in Shakespeare. So I think it's also interesting to talk about the scenes in France that occur in this play, primarily with the, the French royals. There's, you know, a couple of scenes where we see the king and the Dauphin uh, as they're sort of strategizing on how to interact with the English and how to respond as the invasion starts. Uh, And then there's also sort of the one early scene with Catherine learning a few English words, which then obviously leads to the final wooing scene with Henry. And I thought that the, well, I, I, let me get your thoughts, Alex. Like, what, which is there one that you thought handled some of the the French scenes better? Well, I will say the first thing that I would say about both of them is they both cut a ton of French scenes. So, in the actual text, there's a lot more French scenes. There's a there's a big scene with the Dauphin leading up on the night before the Agincourt battle, where the Dauphin is basically like, "I'm the best. I'm gonna kill everybody. I am so awesome. I have nothing to worry about." Um, and then that plays as a nice contrast to, you know, Henry's concerns and uncertainties and worries and all of the the men in the English army's concerns and worries. And you get, in Branagh's version, you sort of get some version of that because you get to you see, I think this is Branagh's version, am I missing, am I mixing them up? One of them, where's the roasted pig? Is that in, maybe that's Sharks. Maybe I'm thinking of Sharks. Yeah, I think I am. In Sharks version... In the night before, you get to see, like, the difference between the, just, like, where they are, that the French are in a really nice place, hanging out, having a party, and the English are, like, cold and sick. So you sort of get some version of that, but you don't actually get to hear, 
mean, there's a lot of comic relief that comes from the Dauphin, and there's also interesting contrast to be made between the Dauphin and his shitty leadership and Henry, which you lose by cutting those scenes that happened the night before. Um, and the other set of scenes that get cut are during the actual battle on the day of Agincourt, there, there are a whole bunch of dialogue scenes on both sides of the front that are all entirely cut. And some of those are, of course, with the, the Dauphin and the French. And so you, you lose a lot of the French perspective in both Sherrick's film and Branagh's film. Really, the most prominent French character in both productions becomes the Herald, who you see interacting with Henry the most and who, who sort of puts the human face on the French. Yeah. Which yeah. I, and I think it was relatively well done in both, but it definitely, I mean, uh, uh, continuing a theme, in the uh, Sherrick version, Hiddleston creates a much sort of stronger emotional, almost empathetic bond with the Herald than I think uh, uh, Branagh does. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I also think just the like the actor who plays the Herald in in the Sherrick one kind of speaks really slowly, and I think that sometimes gets in the way of understanding what he's talking about because he has both a thick accent and he's speaking slowly and almost too slowly. Like he's pausing for dramatic effect, but I don't know if it always works. Whereas I think that works a bit better in Brandon's version. But you're right that 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 becomes our sort of main relationship with the French and. But people keep talking about the Dauphin, like especially the English keep talking about the Dauphin, which is kind of confusing because you barely see the Dauphin. The Dauphin barely registers as a character. Like, you know that he brought the tennis balls and that he kind of stands around making jerk faces, but that's pretty but much... But I mean, also, in, in, even in both productions, the Dauphin, if you're not paying close attention, is almost interchangeable with the other French nobles who are in the scene. He is 100%, and I got confused in the Sharik one when I was watching it. I was like, oh, there's the Dauphin hanging... Nope. The Dauphin is over there. Exactly. And, and, and both, both productions still keep in the death scene of one of the French nobles who, uh, on the battlefield, and I, again, I was confused about whether that was the Dauphin or not at the time. No idea. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't. I went back and I think I checked the text. Yeah, no, I think it is. The Dauphin is, at least in Sherrick, the Dauphin is actually present during the negotiations over Catherine. But yeah, like I don't, I think it was, I think maybe that's one of the things I guess you lose when you translate it to film if you need to make choices they've chosen very much to cut out a lot of the french scenes which allows them to present a more streamlined version but you definitely lose something with those edits well that might also be one of the ways in which because we were talking about is sharik's like a response to branna's that in a way maybe she's just sort of taking a page out of the same book that they both chose to cut they both have really long battle scenes they both cut the dialogue in between the battle and they both cut a lot of the the scenes with the French, and they both decide to focus on Henry. I mean, Sherrick has more character to the supporting characters, but that decision to focus on the English side as opposed to showing both sides, which is what's actually in the in the play, in, right. the, in the text. And one other, I think, like interesting contrast to that to demonstrate there's obviously a different way to do it. In the 1950s, the Stratford Festival in Canada did what's, what, what's sort of viewed as a historic production of Henry V with French-Canadian actors playing all of the French parts hmm. um, on stage. So very, very much, you know, very much situating it in a, in a Canadian, it was, it was obviously set in England and France, but situating in sort of the Canadian context and experience of French solitudes. 
um, in a very sort of realistic portrayal. And I'm presuming, obviously, I haven't, I don't have access to that script. I wonder if it's available somewhere, what edits they chose to make. But um, I presume that production had a much more balanced version of the English and French scenes as opposed to, to these uh, other interpretations. Yeah, I mean, like in the text, Shakespeare makes the French look really bad because it's a lot of the scenes that are cut are the Dauphin scenes, and it's like the Dauphin being, being an idiot, offering comic relief and offering, offering a contrast. Like, he's overconfident, and guess what? That's a problem. But I have seen, like, I've seen it performed, actually, it was at Shakespeare Santa Cruz, where they really showed it as, like, a play that was about both sides because you saw both sides, and so... Like, even more going into the, if you want it to be a going-to-war play, showing both sides really makes it a play about the war as opposed to a play about rah-rah or about, you know, war is bad. Right, because both of these sort of become heroes' journeys and become very much focused on the leadership and character of Henry V as opposed to the, the war itself. The war itself is, almost becomes a device through which we see the, the medal of Henry. right. Well, and that goes back to, I mean, something we didn't quite discuss is just about the question of the futility of the war and how that's shown, that in Branagh's it's quite fatalistic in the sense that you see all these bodies that look like they're dead bodies and it's dark and you're, and, and it's about the tone, whereas in Sherrick's, like, you literally see a dead Henry at the beginning. It starts with his funeral, and you know that his baby is going to be Henry VI and become the new king and that they're going to lose. Well, I guess you don't know yet that they're going to lose their lands until the end, but you get this futility that he's going to be, that you already know he's going to die young. Yeah, I mean, I just, in, I didn't think they were done particularly well in either production, either filmed in a particularly interesting way or really made you care about the characters as they were, as they were going on. It was almost sort of, they they cut it back to almost the essential exposition mm-hmm. and left it there with with of course leaving in the like from a plot perspective entirely gratuitous uh, English language scene with uh, Catherine talking about the fangras and denials. Yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of it's an, it's, is it a gratuitous scene? Because on the one hand, it's like there for comic relief, but it's like why is she learning English? She's learning English for the possible. I don't know. To some degree, isn't she learning English for the possibility that the English might win and she might have to marry him? Yeah, well, and I mean, yeah, I guess that, that, that can be some of the subtext and is some of the subtext. And also, it's our only opportunity to see Catherine before right, the right. wooing scene. So you need to introduce her. Yeah. So I'm being a, a little facetious in that point. But uh, you are. Yeah, right. it I mean, is it's, a scene that's- it's interesting that they really paired it back everywhere else. Yeah, no, you're right. And going back to like my sort of pet peeve about Branagh's seated people. When you, when you see the French scenes at court, it's like a lot of people sitting around. And it kind of, it really kills the energy in the room and it makes you want to like really go back to the English, which is maybe a good thing because you're not supposed to like the French, but it also means that the film kind of stalls there, I think. Yeah, yeah, I found, I found them boring. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's like they cut a lot of the French scenes, but it seems like there's too much of them in the Branagh version, at least. Do we, do, do we have a do they boink for this episode? There's really, <laughs> despite, despite technically passing the Bechtel test, there is surprisingly few fem- female characters in this film. The Dauphin and Henry V, do they boink? Henry V <laughs> in York, did they boink? Is that why he killed everyone? I'm pretty sure the tennis balls are a deep metaphor there. 
<laughs> oh my god. And everyone at camp. I mean, he was giving a little touch of Harry at night, so maybe they didn't boink, <laughs> they tugged. So no boinking. I don't know. I don't know what we would do that was boinking. Yeah. Maybe with him and Catherine, future boinking, but they don't have any sexual tension, so. I mean, we know they future boinked, right? Because we see Henry the okay. Sixth. Okay, yes. We know that there's a Henry the Sixth, but you know what I mean. Was it pleasurable maybe, boinking? Maybe the question is, would Catherine want to boink Henry V, given his wooing scene? You know what? There's like a certain reluctant charm. I mean, like that scene always seems a little out of place to me in both productions from the like Harry we've seen leading up to it completely. But all of a sudden he's this like kind of like frustrated and like has just decided he loves her and or likes her and like wants her and like tries to woo her. And like there's something a little charming about it. Really? I mean, I I think it feels tacked on in Branna's, but I mm-hmm. thought in like in Sharrick's the first time I saw it, I was crying. I was so moved. I was so moved because it was like you spent this whole time with poor Harry. He's so lonely. It's so lonely at the top. And finally he's got, he finally meets this woman that he can now be emotionally honest with. He's finally met his match. He's finally not going to be lonely anymore. He's finally going to have someone to talk to. And he was like so sweet and adorable and like flustered that I found it really charming. Also, I think it's hilarious that you have Tom Hiddleston being like, I'm sorry I'm so ugly. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, that's part of why I didn't find, I just didn't find that scene believable, right? Like, the Harry we've seen throughout Tom Hiddleston's version is, like, very centered. He may be lonely, but you never get the sense of a man who's unsure of himself, right? Yeah, um, especially since we've seen him, like, whoring around with, like, whores and being like, I'm just going to stage that we're fucking just to, like, fuck with my dad. Yeah. And so to, for him to come into this room and suddenly be like, I'm really not charming and I don't know how to deal with girls. You're like, mm-mm. mm You are charming. I don't believe this at all. Yeah. That is an inconsistency in a way that, yeah, it doesn't make sense, especially when you've seen his Henry IV. You're like, you, you're okay with girls. Yeah, no, no kidding. Are you okay with girls? <laughs> um. But Catherine's French. We all know what they say about the French. They don't kiss before marriage. They don't kiss before marriage, and they only interact with their nursemaids? Maybe. Speaking of lines that don't age well, baiser no longer means kiss. (laughs) That is now quite something else that would be much more appropriate to before marriage back in the 1400s. (laughs) So so not, not very enthusiastic boinking on Catherine's part. Well, I don't know. I mean, like, he, he, but he's like Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, I mean, he's a very attractive man. And, like, they sure make him attractive in that scene. They give him that, like, red velvet coat that's, like, really form-fitting so you can, like, really see how, like, skinny he is. They make him attractive in every scene, though, which is sort of my problem with the Sherrick production. Yeah. Too handsome? I don't know what I think about that goat, but... He just, like, he never felt real and visceral to me in the way that Branna's Henry felt, you know? No. Like, I don't know. In the way, like, in his costume and, like, the way he was, like, presented? Yeah. He's always, I thought his he performance was very perfect. visceral. He here. always looks beautiful. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he does look kind of polished in, in Jarek's, like, his like after a war, he's got a couple of stray hairs. Yeah, and his armor is pristine, and his his white horse is pristine. 
Like either they took time, they took the time to wash his horse, which would be weird or, you know, he doesn't look like a man who has just stormed a city, you know? Yeah. Well, okay. To play devil's advocate about your saying that like, he's totally fine with girls. Like, I think it's a slightly different scenario when it's a whore that you're paying for sex and you're clearly the most important person in the room versus like somebody he's finally met his match and he has to get her to say yes. I mean, like, it's a foregone conclusion, but... He, I just don't just buy that this guy could ever be not charming. Because one of the things that we've yeah. established about Henry is that he's constantly charming. Yeah. No, I agree. That's... that Okay, but that's more a problem with the scene, isn't it, than a problem with... Kind of yes and kind of no. Like, one of the things, one of the very few things I liked about the RSC production of Henry V... The Greg Duran production with... Alex Hassel. Yes. Is that it manages to convey Henry's charm within a kind of self-effacing way that makes that scene make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree that the problem with it, like, I feel like emotionally the, the Hiddleston scene works for me, but if you're thinking like logically, he's so charming. It's ridiculous. Like there's, it's like not possible to believe that he's not charming. Like even when he's, being you know fudging his words he's still being like so charming and he gives her a little wink and it's also so charming and then you have tom hiddleston being like i'm sorry i'm so ugly if only had a better face it's like (laughs) yourself recently like even in battle have you seen yourself recently because you don't even get dirty and you apparently never get stubble (laughs) you have a perfectly quaffed goatee Yep. You may have dysentery, but you have your priorities, right? You've got a... Just a you bought his barber, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's... I, I hadn't really thought about that last scene that way before, but then it just always feels a little artificial to me. I guess it makes more... So I would say, that, like, it in a structural way, the Hillston version actually includes sort of some sort of break. I don't know whether it's... I can't remember if it's the prologue or whether it's something else, but there's it makes it clear that there's a temporal break between the end of the battle and that scene. Whereas the Brana version, from what I recall, sort of goes immediately from the end of the triumphal or triumphal mournful anthem and the placing of Falstaff's boy cuts straight to that scene, which makes it seem much more, I think, immediate and connected than uh, in the Hiddleston. But then also in the Hiddleston, you're right that there is a sort of illogical nature of why... Like, it, there's never really a good motivation for why Henry's acting the way he is and has all of a sudden lost his, his confidence and charm. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Actually, I wouldn't say that. I think, the motiv- I think the motivation makes sense because I think it's a different scenario for him to be wooing, to actually be in a position where he's like, I actually want a partner. I actually want someone I can talk to. So I could see him suddenly being nervous even if he was like okay with pouring around with whores. Like that's, that's, that's a fundamentally different emotional situation. I can understand that. What I don't understand is that like the scene, the scene keeps, he keeps talking about how he's not charming and how he's like ugly and come on. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's like he just doesn't know his own charm, but I really don't think he's dumb. No. Not a and like Henry. So like, I think he's like looked in the mirror and knows that, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with the, with the added textual layer being that like, she's one of his demands coming out of the war, right? She is our chief demand. So, I mean, realistically, they're negotiating all of these things behind, like, in the other room while this is going like, on. So it's I mean, gonna he happen. knows he's going to get her. Although yeah. he does that happen. But for some really- reason, he, he wants to win her on his own, right? Yeah. I mean, he does have that really adorable moment where once he's convinced her to kiss him, they kiss, and he's like, you know, you have magic in your lips. And then he hears her father come, and he turns real fast. 
<laughs> and goes, here comes your father. Like, we were not kissing. It's okay. <laughs> we weren't kissing. I wasn't kissing your daughter. Not, no, 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 no. And that was like very, I mean, I think he ends up being charming in his silliness there, but it is kind of, yeah, mixed feelings. And that's all for our episode today of the Dueling Henry V for the 21st Folio. I'm your host, Alex Heaney, the editor-in-chief of The Seventh Row and a film and theater critic there. You can find me on Twitter at BeWestCineAst. And my guests today are Craig Rutan. Amateur theater enthusiast from Toronto. You can find me on Twitter at CRUT, C-R-U-T. And M.A. Rowe. I'm Mary Angela. I'm a contributing editor at The Seventh Row. And you can find me on Twitter at LapsedVictorian. That's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Check back next week for a new episode discussing new Shakespeare productions. To keep up with the latest episodes, don't forget to subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-row.com.